0: Welcome to Teachers in White Coats, a podcast series produced by the Educational Technology Team at Stanford Medicine, where we sit down with doctors, faculty, and other health professionals to hear their stories on the innovative ways they've used education to improve health outcomes. I'm your host, Irfan Majadam, Manager of Academic Tech and Innovation at Stanford Medicine. Today's episode will focus on misinformation, conspiracy theories, and what we can do to combat them during the time of COVID. I'm excited about our guest today, my friend and colleague, Dr. Seema Yasmin. Seema is an Emmy Award-winning journalist, poet, medical doctor, and author. She's also a clinical assistant professor in Stanford's Department of Medicine and director of the Stanford Health Communication Initiative. Welcome to the show, Seema.
1: Thanks so much for having me, our friend. So
0: let's jump right in. It seems that misinformation and mistrust are rampant right now. Why are we more prone to believe conspiracy theories about our health during this difficult time?
1: So I have been tracking and studying health misinformation and disinformation for years, first as a journalist, then as a scholar of public health communication. So I can tell you it's nothing new. We've had conspiracy theories about our bodies, about our environment for as long as humans have been around, I'm sure. Misinformation and disinformation has been circulating forever as well. But what we see often during a time of crisis, like with this pandemic, like with previous epidemics, is you have a lot more fear. You have a lot more anxiety. You have people asking questions that can't always be answered in that moment because science is still evolving. We're still studying and learning things. And as humans, we need answers and we like to have a complete picture and a complete story for something. So what often happens is when you have these knowledge gaps, these gaps where things are still being analyzed, still being understood, we often plug those gaps with these conspiracy theories, with bits of information that oftentimes actually contain like this little nugget of a truth in it, but then that's just surrounded by so much bunk. And I think um, it just comes from that human need of wanting to understand something of having a complete picture, because that even if it's something bad, that completeness can make you feel better at a time of heightened anxiety and fear. You
0: know, I have friends and relatives. These are college educated people with access to resources uh, who have started to believe in some of these theories are there any strategies that we can use when we do come across acquaintances who share misinformation or is it too late by the time they get to that point?
1: I think it's still doable. I'll tell you a funny story because as a scholar of misinformation and disinformation, part of my job is training physicians and healthcare providers in general and scientists as well. Like, What do you do in a particular encounter when you're Faced with a person, say in a clinical setting, someone who says to you, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid because I've heard that vaccines are really harmful, you know, which they're not. How do you counter that? So I have like, we do a six hour workshop, right? On the different strategies and the evidence behind these different tools that you can use to have those conversations. But I'll tell you, Irfan, in my like personal life as a human being, in my family group chat when my aunties say some of this stuff or they like share a video that's all about conspiracy theories and it's not even a good video. It's a really crappy fake video. I kind of like lose my ish. I I won't swear on your podcast. And I'm like, oh gosh, I just dropped the ball and I didn't do any of the things I tell other people to do because also I'm human, right? And when I just see all these messages, I'm like, come on aunties, you know, I study this. I tell you how to look out for accurate information, how to spot a fake and still you're sending the whole family, these really bad videos that just seem completely fake. So, the thing that happens in that kind of setting where I just like get really annoyed is I will like unleash my annoyance, right, at people, be like, oh my God, how could you believe this is so dumb? it doesn't work. It just shuts down the conversation. Either they get a bit annoyed at me or they get really sheepish and they just leave the group chat for a while and everyone gets a bit moody and everything goes a bit quiet. It doesn't help us debunk any of that. It doesn't help us have a conversation. And here's the thing, it's so important to be able to have that conversation about a falsehood that someone's come across. There's new data from just this week, I think, around Uh, early to mid-August this new study came out analyzing more than a hundred thousand tweets where these researchers had access to where the tweets were coming from so looking at very like localized data as well basically what they learned was that when people see tweets that are spreading anti-vaccine misinformation and disinformation it really has an impact on people's behavior so they see the tweet and they're like oh you know what, I'm not going to get a flu shot this year. Or, oh my God, this looks terrible. If there is a COVID-19 vaccine, I'm not going to get it. But... That impact, that negative impact of the tweet is diminished when a person sees the tweet and then talks about it with friends and family. So I share that because it's not a hopeless situation. When people look at those tweets in isolation, it has a negative impact on their health behavior. But when they see the tweet and then they chat about it with their cousin or their grandmother, then they actually go through a process of debunking it and it doesn't have that negative impact on them. So the thing that's really important is one, remember that all of us are vulnerable to misinformation and disinformation. You may have six degrees, but trust me, there are things that you might fall for because of how sophisticated they are, or because part of that theory of misinformation is rooted in one piece um, that's accurate. So be aware that we're all vulnerable. And then the second thing is have some grace and compassion, unlike me in the group chat. Have some grace and compassion when people do believe something that's false, even when it's blatantly false, because we are, especially now in this time of heightened fear and anxiety. People are looking for answers, they're deluged with information, even the accurate information is like coming at such a high speed that it's hard to figure out. Like, what should I believe? What shouldn't I believe? This scientist said one thing, wait, this other scientist said something that seems to counteract that. And of course, scientists are human too. So there are scientists out there who are spreading misinformation and disinformation. So I start off with those two things. Remember that everyone is vulnerable, including yourself. That will help you have more empathy, compassion, then the third thing I would say, when you're having those conversations, hear people out a bit. Your first instinct might be, but oh my God, that's obviously BS. It's like, stop talking. But actually it's better to ask some questions and to listen to people, understand why they might believe what they believe. And then look for some shared ground. So for example, in a clinical setting, right, where a patient or a parent is adamant that they're not going to vaccinate their kid because they're so scared of vaccines, and you, the provider, are like thinking in your head, oh my gosh, this is such BS, they're believing all these false things. It can be really unhelpful to just barge into that conversation with, oh, you're so wrong, you're so wrong, here's the evidence. It can be more helpful to hear them out understand why they're coming to this belief, why they believe it, because people have all sorts of different reasons for believing misinformation and conspiracy theories, and then identify what the common ground is. And in that particular setting, the common ground is both the parent and yourself, regardless of the other things you believe, you both care deeply about that child's health. And finding that common ground can be a really, really useful launch pad for the rest of a conversation.
0: Great, thank you. I imagine that's probably a pretty tiring process if you have to address each of your (laughs) friends and relatives. But it's something I think that we're all faced with right now.
1: Absolutely. It's just rife. And you can't blame people because there is so much information out there. And there are things happening that kind of sound a bit made up, which is oftentimes where conspiracy theories launch from too. So for example, this week, you know, mid-August, we learned that in Russia, they have approved a vaccine which is absurd because that vaccine hasn't gone through phase three trials yet. So that sounds made up. And yet it's a believable thing. And yet that in and of itself is going to fuel so many more conspiracy theories about vaccines. For example, people in the US and other parts of the world might say, well, what if our government also fast tracks a vaccine that hasn't been thoroughly tested and they do it as an October surprise because this is an election year? So there are knock on effects to all of these things.
0: What about preventative measures? Uh, Is there anything that we educators, physicians, or journalists can do ahead of time to ensure that if future conspiracy theories are started, they're not believed and shared without credible evidence?
1: An ounce of prevention is definitely worth a pound of cure. We know that. There's even this amazing theory from social psychology. It's been around for about four decades now. And it's this idea that you can pre bunk something as a way of protecting people from conspiracy theories and myths that are about to hit them and the way that that can work is that you have to be ahead of the curve as maybe a scholar or someone who's debunking it and you might say oh this myth is about to come to you for example it's going to say that climate change is fake and it's a Chinese conspiracy uh, and then you'll say to people so be aware that this conspiracy theory is headed your way you're probably going to come across it and here are four reasons as to why this isn't true that's been shown to work it's been studied for decades but it requires you being ahead of the curve which is a little bit difficult because sometimes you are behind the curve right that misinformation and disinformation just spreads so widely and it's hard to like be ahead of that all the time. The thing that can really help and that we're suffering now is that we're trying to catch up on decades of lost scientific literacy. Um, And we're trying to do that at the time of a crisis. So ideally, people across the U.S. and around the world would already have a really good understanding of how science functions. They'd already understand that science isn't a bunch of facts. It's actually a process of interrogation, where you ask a question and you do experiments and where you keep an open mind because things can change, right? And I think we're seeing this play out now where people are saying, oh, but Dr. Fauci, a few months ago, he wasn't telling everyone to wear masks and then now he is, so why has he changed his mind? And actually he's changed his mind because he's a great scientist and he's changed his mind based on much more evidence and better data. So we are unfortunately, in the middle of a crisis, having to inform people while also having to play catch up on scientific literacy. And we could prevent this in the future if we just have better education. I say job as a massive ask, but we need to make sure that we're peeling back the curtain on the scientific process, inviting people in so people really understand how it functions.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, Let's switch gears a bit. You're a medical doctor and a researcher, but I know that your passion is also in journalism. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up as a journalist?
1: Yes, I never, ever thought I would be a journalist or have my first journalism job as a newspaper reporter in Texas, and I've even thought I'd go to Texas. But what happened was I was a physician, I was working in the UK, I got a bit fed up and frustrated of the healthcare system in general, that we were just patching people up and weren't really dealing with the root cause of illness, like homelessness or substance abuse. And we weren't looking at the fact that people just kept coming into the ER and then leaving and then coming back again. So then I got interested in public health, and I moved to the States about 10 years ago to pursue that passion. I joined uh, the Epidemic Intelligence Service as an officer at the CDC, colloquially known as disease detectives, where you get sent out to investigate different epidemics. I absolutely loved that job because you were chasing contagion. You were jumping into different hot zones, trying to find out what disease was spreading. But as I was doing that work, Erafan, every time I went to a different hot zone, I realized that it wasn't just a disease that was spreading. It wasn't just a virus that was contagious. It was also misinformation and disinformation. It was as contagious as a pathogen. It would sometimes spread faster than a virus, and it was fueling the spread of the disease. So I became really interested in the spread of information, felt like public health was not taking that seriously as a threat, in many ways still isn't doing enough to counter the spread of contagious rumors and myths. And I thought, what can I do to be better at storytelling? What can I do to be a better communicator? Um, And so I went to journalism school from the CDC and then landed my first job as a newspaper reporter at the Dallas Morning News right as Ebola was spreading in West Africa. And when I moved to Dallas, we then saw that first case of Ebola in the U.S right in my backyard in Dallas. And ever since then, I've been reporting on epidemics. I'm now an analyst for CNN and I do lots of freelance writing. I teach journalism at Stanford, which is great. So I get to teach specifically health and science journalism. But I'm really passionate that a free press is the immune system of a democracy. So if you have journalists that are well-supported and well-trained, there are frontline defense against the spread of misinformation and disinformation, which is a really powerful tool if those journalists are well supported.
0: I think we're fortunate to have you on the front lines right now during this pandemic. So thank you for your work on that. Thank you. So you have a series on the Digital Medic website where you tackle the most current myths around COVID-19. How do you identify the most common myths around the world and what's your process in addressing them?
1: So it's very much a team effort because at any given time there is so much misinformation and disinformation spreading. Or maybe I should say, because I keep using those two words Um, as a distinction right and sometimes people don't but I use a particular set of definitions for different types of false news I don't call it fake news because that's a term that's been weaponized so real quick misinformation is false information that spread without any intention to cause harm. So it might just be someone saying to you, I heard if you eat loads of garlic, you won't get COVID-19. That's not true, but they're not necessarily out to hurt you. Disinformation, on the other hand, is still false information, but that's spread with that deliberate intention to cause harm, to cause havoc and chaos in a place. Um, And so what we do is we track globally and we look at different data sets. We talk to different people in different countries. We look on line to see what's circulating to see in India this week do there seem to be prevailing myths that are spreading in Zimbabwe this week what seems to be the biggest issue when it comes to information and a lack of understanding of some aspect of the pandemic and it's interesting when you look at those patterns that things cycle sometimes because of a thing that a high-ranking official said other times the new studies come out and then hydroxychloroquine is back in the news again and people are asking questions about that so we just try and keep an ear to the ground globally about what's spreading. And we're obviously very concerned about the spread of misinformation and disinformation in low middle income countries. And that's where the content we're providing that you're talking about is really targeted to.
0: And what's one of the most implausible myths that you've heard while doing this work?
1: Maybe the 5G myth that 5G can cause symptoms of COVID-19. That one Spread widely. There were celebrities like Kerry Hilson in the US who were spreading that. And then in Europe, you saw the manifestation of belief in that myth, which is where there was all this arson of cell towers because people were so worried that these towers were emitting frequencies that were spreading infection or causing symptoms of disease, which you think in the middle of a pandemic when we need connectivity, we need cellular networks to be robust, you don't want people setting fire to these cell towers. (laughs)
0: Do you have any idea where that myth came from? Because as a technologist, that just sounds absurd to me.
1: So I'm really interested in the origin stories of myths, but I have to confess that I don't fully understand where that one originated from. So I'll have to do some digging and and try and find out. I have a, a book that will come out in a few months called Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them. And there's about 50 chapters, each one kind of dissecting a commonly held um, belief that's wrong or right about science and health and I really enjoyed writing that book in terms of like where did this idea come from that vaccines are dangerous or that chemtrails are dangerous for example so with the 5g one because it's pretty new I haven't seen
0: okay so let's end on a lighter or rather funnier note you recently added stand-up comedian to your list of accolades uh, what was that experience like and did you learn anything from it
1: Yeah, so this was before the pandemic, and I have to say the pandemic has totally screwed with my plans for stand-up comedy, although people are doing it online. I'm a newbie, I've only done it a few times, but I've been studying it for a while, and I really love doing stand-up comedy that combines my scholarly work with jokes. Because I think it's just a, why should science be only like in ivory towers, only in journals that written in jargon that very few people can access? Science is so interesting. Like the work that I do blows my mind in terms of how information is contagious, how even emotion can be contagious. Plus I have a very funny family, which just gives me like a lot of fodder for jokes um, that I incorporate in there. But to me, it's just like, why shouldn't people get to engage with scientists like everyone should know they're friendly neighborhood scientists like you should be able to interact with them figure out what they do understand their work in plain English and for me comedy is so clever it's so brutally honest which I love about it so combining that with my work just felt like a no-brainer and it was a challenge it was something that really frightened me like I do a lot of public speaking and broadcast journalism which I'm really comfortable doing but being in like a small basement comedy club with like 50 people watching and you have to make them laugh I was like oh my god that's so scary and I kind of wanted to study how you do sound up comedy well and I wanted to overcome that fear.
0: I hope you get your own Netflix special soon.
1: Yeah we'll see <laughs> one day maybe.
0: <laughs> Thank you for speaking with me today Sima.
1: Thank you so much everyone.
0: Look for more insights from Dr. Yasmin on CNN or search for her content online and definitely follow her on Instagram. You can also pick up her new book, Muslim Women Are Everything. I just picked it up. It's a beautiful book with powerful stories and illustrations of Muslim women from around the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teachers in White Coats. If you're enjoying our show, please like, rate, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. My name is Irfan Majadam. See you next time.